Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Des Bishop Podcast. It's a beautiful Sunday morning here in West Hampton. It's, uh, I'll tell you the exact time, which I shouldn't do, 821, I shouldn't do because I realized that if people were really paying attention to the last episode, you would have noticed that at the beginning of the episode, it was 10.30 a.m., and later on in the episode, I mentioned the time is 8.30 a.m., which gave evidence to the fact that I did that in two sittings. Um, and the reason was that, you know, I did a lot, of, I, t- I talked for a lot about Joe Biden, and then I didn't put it up. That's the truth. You know, you can, and, and there's, there's no reason that other than, you know, it's such a difficult topic that I just, I just played it safe, you know? Excuse me, I'm still drinking my coffee, which is really unacceptable. I should have just waited for this cup of coffee to be done. But what happened was I got excited because I thought, you know, this morning, because I like to have three episodes a week and I felt I felt obligated, well, not obligated, but I just felt like it's not fair if I don't do one because I was, I don't have a guest and I've been living in quarantine since March 18th and none of us have done anything since March 8th. Well, none of us have done anything since mid-March and really it's just hard to have anything to talk about, you know? And I was listening to Sam Harris podcast last night and, you know, just, I was just, just just listening to the stuff that he talks about with people and it was reminding me of like my early recovery and meditation and I was actually going to talk about my meditation you know that the journey of you know how I came to meditation and the types of meditation that I did and times in my life where it completely slipped and I just didn't do it at all and times where it was really important in my life um so I was thinking about that but then I wasn't feeling that you know so much this morning when I, you know, when I woke up and, uh, and then I was just like, oh, I guess I'll just do something late tonight when the day is done. I'll, you know, something will come to me during the day. And then I was tidying this morning because my house is a, is a, a total mess, like a, an, a, like a, an absolute total mess. And in the midst of tidying while drinking my coffee, which I'm having another sip now, apologies, um, I just started thinking about, and so I was actually, I started to think about, uh, you know, the early part of my comedy career and how many times I've done interviews and, you know, the sort of way that you have to tell the story of the beginning of your comedy career. No, first, actually, sorry, first I was thinking because this meditation thing led me to thinking about, oh, maybe I should just actually, maybe I should just tell like my drinking story, but then I just didn't want to be that personal. So then I was thinking about, would I tell the story of how I, you know, got into comedy, which is sort of a little bit related to getting sober and clean? And then I just thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to revisit those early routines, the routines that made my early comedy career and how they relate to 
what was going on in my life at the time. Because it's fun for me to do that. And it's a fun thing for me to do on my own. It's funny, uh, you know, I started comedy in 1997. And I had no real thoughts about being a comedian since I was young. You know, I used to watch a lot of stand-up comedy in the 80s in New York. There was a lot of these stand-up comedy shows that were on, like, Showtime. And, you know, it was really, it was to be honest, it was before the big HBO comedy specials. There was a lot of compilation shows. It was one on A&E. Um, I think it was like A Night at the Improv or something. Caroline's had a live show. And... uh Andrew Dice Clay, would you believe, was huge. And of course, there was no YouTube. Uh, but they, just, just, these stand-up shows used to be on a lot. Um, maybe there was HBO specials. I can't remember. I, we didn't have HBO. We had Showtime. You know, this was you know, the early days of cable television. So I remember Richard Jenny had a Showtime special. Uh, I just remember seeing all these different comics coming on, on the TV. Some who I would end up you know, like working with uh, later on, you know, like Dom Herrera, um, Mike Wilmot, uh, Rich Hall, uh, these guys would pop up on the TV. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't remember them in terms of like, I wouldn't have been able to say that was Rich Hall. But then when I like saw Rich Hall, I was like, oh my God, I think I was like a kid. That guy was on my TV. So um, anyway, I used to love watching that. I don't, you know, it's funny, you don't remember why, you don't remember many of the routines, uh, but I, I remember my dad saying to me one time, oh, you know, you're, I think you're going to be a comedian, you love watching this stuff so much, but it wasn't really like, there was never a time in my life where I thought I want to be a comedian, you know, but there was a time in my life where I thought I want to be an, an actor, and there was definitely a time in my life where I thought I want to be a writer, you know, um, and you know, I'm not going to get into my drinking story, but, you know, I drank from the age of 12 to the age of 19, and it was quite tumultuous for, for a young man. 12, obviously too young to start. 19, probably too young to stop, but it just was never good, you know? I was Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde drinker. I had like a, I had some sort of a switch. And uh, so from the age of 16, really, I mean, there was problems uh, from from straight away, but from the age of 16 some real negative outcomes began happening like in blackouts and stuff. And uh, from the age of 17, I actually started stopping and succeeded uh, July, July 16th, 1995, literally sitting in the exact same spot that I'm sitting in now. Uh, it was the last drink I ever had here in West Hampton, the night of July 15th, 1995, the night of uh, my neighbor Gary's 50th birthday party. He'll be 75 this July 15th. Uh, and I'll, I'll be 25 years not drinking. Anyway, uh, I remember from the age of 16 till the, so the summer of 1992 to the summer of 1995, I had a summer job working as a doorman in Chelsea in Manhattan in the London Terrace Towers, the four corners of 23rd, 24th Street, 9th and 10th Avenue. Chelsea wasn't as fancy as it is now. It was very gay and it was a great experience to just see that that life and that culture happening for a young teenager from Queens who was in boarding school in Ireland it was a you know it was a it was like a whole a, a, another another cultural uh thing to be exposed to it was good for my 
you know, it was just good for my like social development, you know, broaden my mind. And uh, Susan Sontag was was one of the tenants. Annie Leibovitz was one of the tenants. Uh, Kate Pearson from the B-52s. And it was cool to just, you know, it felt cool to be around that. And it felt cool to have conversations with those tenants. Um, and, you know, just, I guess it gets you out of Queens too, which is good. You know, it's, it's a, inevitable that you would be exposed to that. Anyway, long story short, uh, the summer of 1995 was the last summer I did that job. That was actually the summer that I stopped drinking. And I went to a lot of AA meetings downtown in Greenwich Village uh, after work and before work and kind of got in with a a crew of lesbians, funnily enough, who kind of adopted me into their little AA clique. And uh, that was like my 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 summer of, of, of rejuvenation. But I remember uh, I used, that was when I began to think that I could be a writer. I remember t- taking a pad and I would do it overnight shifts in London Terrace and I would like just start writing stuff. I, I think I remember, I think I started to try to write a play. I can't remember, but I just remember thinking that I was beginning the process of trying to become a writer you know um but really stopping drinking was 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 phase 1 of my journey to becoming a stand up comedian you know i i completely fucked up my first year in, in ucc in cork um and it, it was really it was really a washout that that first year the only positive that came out of that first year was that i joined the drama society and um i did a i did an audition for equus uh, the, the the it was a a play about uh, a psychiatrist and his patient, but the patient was like obsessed with horses. But anyway, I was completely pissed at the audition. I showed up to the audition drunk, and uh, needless to say, I didn't get a big part. But I got a part as the main horse. No lines, but Owen McDonald, who actually has had a career as an actor, uh, at one stage had to get on my shoulders. Of course, I was. I was uh, 18 going on 19. I think I was still 18. I, I don't need, you know, November 12th, 19, uh, November 12th, 1994, I turned 19. So I, I think, I can't remember if that play was before or after my birthday. But anyway, uh, Owen McDonald used to get on my shoulders every night. And uh, I had to wear these uh, these wooden things that were like nailed into shoes. And I, I remember one night, one of the nails started to pop up. And I tried to pull it out with my teeth. And still to this day, there's a tiny chip in one of my incisors from my uh, trying to get that nail out, uh, which I can still feel to this day. Every time I feel that chip, I think of fucking Owen McDonald fucking getting on my shoulders and riding me. But uh, I made a lot of friends that first year uh, in the UCC uh, Dramat. But that was like a lot of a lot of drinking and then a lot of drugs, too. Not not so much with the dram- dramat friends, but I I met some other friends, the Sir Henry side of things, and that year was was it was pretty pretty crazy. Uh, needless to say, I gave it all up uh, in New York, uh, sort of, and then started over. I didn't actually go back until the end of October 1995. I went back to repeat uh, English and sociology. Uh, so. I uh, then was was uh, you know clean and got very involved in NA in Cork, and the but also I got 
a proper role, like I got a, a role in Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Psalm in the UCC Drama Society. And now I was sober and it was a, it was a good part. And myself, Killian Murphy, by the way, Ed, Ed Wilson, who, oh God, why do I, oh, Ed, Ed, Ed McLeam? Uh, it, his professional name is different, and I always bloody forget it. But uh, he was Ed. Ed Wilson was an equus, and uh, he was a, he was he was actually the um, the psychiatrist in Equus, and Owen McDonald was that was the patient, and Ed was directing. Observe the Sons of Ulster marching towards the Psalm. So Ed was the only guy that I knew from the year before, and then myself, Killian Murphy. Cahill Murray, who presents Late Date on uh, RT Radio 1, um, a, a lot of other guys. Uh, Thomas Conway, who's now, I think, the script editor for Druid, uh, and, and and a large cast. If you know that play, Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards Some, it's a large cast. But uh, that was that was a serious enough production. It was good production, actually. And uh, we were we were all very into it. And we all started to sort of take acting quite seriously and uh also i was sober a lot of those guys were first years and some of them to be honest are still my my close friends to this day uh and uh that's when i really started to feel like i could be an actor you know and um it was through that drama society connection that i i began to sort of feel like the, the thespian life was, was the life for me. In the meantime, over in fucking N.A., I was uh, like an obsessed N.A. member. I think I might have joked about this before, but I was very much into being like the best recovering addict of all time. And a lot of my sharing was was like a real performance. And I don't get me wrong, like I, 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 I did it like hard. I worked hard at it. Like I, 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 I studied... I studied all the, you know, I, I, I read all the literature, the, the NA literature, the AA literature, and I expanded it out to, you know, self-help books and, you know, different things. And I would read, you know, pick up little passages from places and try to put them into my life. And, uh, and I would share really well, you know, I would, I would make sense of some, some simple bit of wisdom that it gets imparted to you in the early days of recovery, and I would turn it into some, some great five-minute essay and share, and then people would say, it was good listening to Des there, and I would love that because I think I was you know, secretly just feeding my ego, which I don't regret because it kept me in the game. You know, Different things keep you there, and partially those sort of sharing performances uh, kept me interested in going, you know, different strokes for, for different folks. And the whole time while I was, you know, sort of like trying to gain as much knowledge as possible about how to be reborn as a healthy individual that wasn't uh, compulsively, you know, obsessive, obsessing over mood-altering substances and compulsively taking them with great damage to my own life, while I was trying to learn all that information, uh, it was actually helping me despite the fact that some of it was definitely driven by by my ego you know plus i was young i was 19 20 years old so of course like my ego is going to drive a lot of my my motivations you know I'm still like you know very into the image and so uh 
as a result of that, I was very close with my NA friends. Like I, I, I would say that that was the main part of my life. You know, college was definitely third. One number one was NA. Two was the drama society, and college was kind of just like this thing that had me in cork. But I was really ignoring it largely. Uh, so much so that I failed again at the end of my second first year. But I did repeat. I stayed in Cork the summer of 1996, worked in River Island, and um, repeated in the autumn and passed. So I, I had a, a clean bill of health going into second year, and I passed all my exams in second year. So anyway, um, it was uh, the, 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 the winter of 1997... Well, actually, it was probably the autumn of 96 that one of my good buddies in N.A. began being the resident MC of Gorby's Comedy Club in Cork. And Gorby's was just a nightclub. It's still there to this day. And in fact, the guy that runs it still runs it. Uh, I, I saw him recently. It's called something else now. Actually, I just forgot the name of it. But back then it was Gorby's and above it was Club Chaos. Uh, now it's just the two floors are just one club and it's not Gorby's. But anyway... Gorby's was just like a student-y nightclub, but they decided to start doing stand-up comedy, and they were doing Wednesdays and Sunday nights and bringing acts over from the UK, uh, you know, some decent acts, and uh, I remember the first show that we went, uh, that I went to was, it was a double headliner with Jeff Boys and Stu Who, um, both of whom I would end up working with later on, but Jeff Boys was a real crowd pleaser, and he did what what I now know to be like the hackiest of all routines. He did a, an impersonation of Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, uh, and Al Pacino. Uh, you know, whatever the the scenario was, it was just their voices, and of course, he did good. You know, Joe Pesci. I remember one of them was like something about stepping over the line. So it was all the different ways, you know, did you step over that fucking line? And, you know, he got a standing ovation, but he was opening. He was opening for Stu Who. Stu Who was going on second. And Stu Who was a real crowd pleaser too, but he couldn't follow fucking Jeff Boys. We gave Jeff Boys a standing ovation. He was the opener. Uh, Stu Who came on, he was fine. But, you know, Jeff Boys that night particularly was a tough act to follow, especially for fucking students. You know, like we're... Like 21 years, I guess I was 21 at that stage, or, or certainly 20 going on 21, and uh, I'd never been to a live stand-up comedy show before. That was the first stand-up comedy show I was ever at, and it was just the most amazing feeling, you know, to just like, fucking wow, you know, wow, students never having seen stand-up comedy before, we're just like, wow, this is amazing, fucking this De Niro, his De Niro is perfect, oh my god, we were fucking transfixed, so... Our buddy used to get us in free all the time. So we started going to this comedy club like every Wednesday and Sunday night. And, you know, there was some there was some decent acts. I remember Hovis Presley died in his ass, which is so bad. He's so funny. He used to have these like little poems. But of course, like students just didn't get it, you know. And uh, he died so bad. You know, they, they really, of course, looking back now that I'm a comic, it was such shitty crowds. Um, We were a shitty crowd. And uh, so the better comedy club, by the way, was City Limits in Cork, but I wasn't even really aware of it at that stage. I didn't know that was like a thing, you know? I just only knew about this because this guy I knew was 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 hosting the Gorbys. So uh, they started doing these uh, joke competitions. 
you know, which was basically, I think, in the in the middle. So they were so cheap. They weren't bringing in like supports. They were just having my buddy open up, do 20 minutes, take a break, and then put on these acts. Like that first show was exceptional to have had two headliners. I think that may have actually been the first night. So that's why they got like a double headliner. Because most of the time it was just a headliner from the UK and my buddy opening up and a break. And then I think before the break, they would do this joke competition where anybody could get up from the crowd and tell like a joke joke. And I would often get up and tell a joke joke. Um, and the funny thing was that it was all myself and my NA buddies. And the, I think the prize was a bottle of Buckfast. I remember the prize was booze. Um, I can't remember if I ever won or not, but I remember knowing that the prize was irrelevant. And then I guess late January 1997, I got up to tell a joke at the joke competition, but something had happened to me. I can't remember what. Oh, and sorry, I should point out that my friend from NA uh, had started to say to me that I really think you should try stand-up comedy because he had obviously noticed that I had something you know going on. Also, personally for me, I had started to think that I might be into it because I had hosted the, the Dramat Gala that year, 1996. So basically my third year in college, even though I was in second year, I hosted the Dramat Gala, which was like a couple of like sketches or short plays um, and I was the host and I was very comfortable hosting it, you know, like I just loved hosting it and I loved the off the cuff nature of it. And that was probably more like my first gig, but you couldn't say it was my first gig cause I didn't know. I wasn't even nervous cause I didn't know. I just remember being really good at it and being surprised. So I think that was what got into my head. Oh shit, I, I could, I, you know, I'm good at this, this hosting stuff, you know, but it, you know, it, it didn't start to solidify in my brain as I, I could do stand up uh, until my friend started to push that I should try. I thought it was, I remember thinking it'd be too arrogant to think that you could get up there and do stand up. Anyway, long story short, I got up to do the joke competition and I started talking about what just happened to me. I think it was something that happened in the bathroom. I can't remember. But, I mean, I don't know how good or bad it was, but it was it was straight up improv, live on stage in front of a crowd. So I told my story, then I told my joke. And when I got off stage that night, the, my NA buddy took me right over to the owner of the club and said, he's doing a spot in two weeks' time. Didn't really give me a chance to say yes or no. The owner agreed, and because there was no... Um, no real like open mic infrastructure down in Cork. And my buddy didn't really like come up through like any scene. There was no scene really. Uh, I had to do 20 minutes. So I had two weeks to get the 20 minutes together. And I may or may not have told this story before. I might even be repeating myself to these listeners, which is was so sad because I didn't intend to get into this much detail about that. Because I actually wanted to get into looking at the origins of two or three of my big early routines. Anyway... Um, I got up and did 20 minutes. Now, it's very important to know that cork is a huge part of my early comedy routine because in the summer of 1996, I decided to stay in Ireland for the summer. As I told you, I was working in River Island, but this guy I knew had a corporation flat in the Glen in Cork. Now, the Glen is not a good neighborhood. That's why if you ever, sometimes even on TikTok, I'll make a Glen joke. The Glen was, particularly back then, it was really bad. And there was these kind of like, 
emergency housing flats that I think were built in the late sixties or early seventies during you know one of the housing crisis, and they were sort of thrown up and they were really shitty flats, and nobody wanted to live in them by the mid nineties. Uh, some of them were boarded up, but my friend had one of these flats, but he had met a, a woman in Cork and was living with her. But the rent was originally £8.70 a week, but then it went up to £9.20. So he was keeping the flat because it was so cheap. So he said to me, do you want to take the flat in the Glen? Now, for an American student in UCC to live up in the Glen was insanity. You know, I mean, it, it, it really was like a tough hood. And so I said, yeah, fuck it, because I just, I was excited by it. And in the summer of 1996, I moved up and lived in the Glen alone, a one-bedroom flat in Cumra Park. One tree, tree, Cumra Park. And uh, so the whole summer, I was working in River Island, living in the Glen. And the Glen was like another amazing cultural thing to see because particularly at that time, it was like an underclass. The shop looked like, you know, the local shop was just full of -of out-of-date stuff. My friend was getting butter vouchers in the post and he told me that I could use the butter vouchers in the shop and I would go to the shop and use the butter vouchers to buy shit. So I was like living in some social experiment where I was actually understanding the life of social welfare despite the fact that I was just a a, a student in Cork. Now, I wasn't getting money off my parents. I was living off the money I was making in in River Island. But at the same time, uh, you know, it was... uh, you know, it was it was a tough life that that was happening around me, and I was witnessing all that. In fact, very recently, um, one of my neighbors from Cumber Park was messaging me on Instagram, um, saying that very soon after uh, that time, or maybe even at that time, she got pregnant, and uh, she's now a grandmother. Uh, but they, uh, you know, her and her buddy. The the woman that lived right above me, I can't remember uh I can't remember her first name, but her last name was O'Driscoll. That was like a famous that was a famous name from from that area. Infamous more. Um and she was related to all them. They were like a tough hood. They were a tough family, I should say. And uh the her her buddy, the, the she would always hang out upstairs, this woman that messaged me the other day. And uh I I I I think they had a fascination with me because they were just like, "What the fuck is this guy doing here?" But I became quite friendly with them, and then I remember my other neighbor. Not not every apartment in the block was occupied; some of them were boarded up. And then the other neighbor was this older woman who was clearly like had a major problem with prescription drugs, and she was always like out of her fucking mind. And sometimes she would try to have conversations with me, but she was like away with the fairies. God love her. Um, and that was actually, that was the beginning of me really understanding, because I would hear people sharing in NA about that they were addicted to prescription drugs, but I'd never, I'd, I'd never experienced that. I'd never seen what that was like. And then I would see her like away with the fairies half the time. And then every now and then she wouldn't be, but she was fucking miserable. And she would be like, like almost like, you know, frothing at the mouth. Anyway, needless to say, it was a, it was a sad thing to see. Uh, but at the same time, I, I mean, I must admit, I, I it's it's almost kind of fucked up in a way, but I was fascinated by all this madness, you know? Um, 
and there was graffiti in the, you know, there was like graffiti in the, in our stairwell and it smelt like Jay's fluid. The corporation would come in every now and then and just fucking like spray Jay's fluid. And I remember one time being in my flat and, uh, somebody was coming to visit somebody in my building. And, uh, I remember one of them saying in a Cork accent, like, fuck, it smells just like fucking prison in here. Because I think in prison they use Jay's fluid to, you know, to, to clean everything. So anyway, you know, I was like surrounded by this fucking madness, you know, and I was absorbing it. And so at that first show in Cork, I, I, I definitely, I was doing a lot of material about the north side of Cork and the Cork accent. And, and and that became such a huge part of my early comedy career. And like, I mean, I'm forever grateful to those people, you know, that they kind of embraced me. I ended up playing basketball and Neptune and I really lived like a Northside Cork life. Um, and uh, I never had any problems in the Glen, you know, I never had any like intimidation. I mean, the flat got robbed once, but the only time the flat got robbed was the day after we decided to have this big party um, and some local guy, we let some local guys in and they saw that I had like a nice sound system. I hadn't invested in like a nice stereo, you know, like a, a hi-fi system, you know, that's like stacks back in the day. You got the amp, you know, and these speakers. And uh, so I had like a nice sound system to play my tapes my Henry's 94 tapes, like, and, uh, they, the next day, uh, they, the window was broken and my, my system was gone. And I, I knew who took it, but whatever, you know, um, Rutherford was the guy, I won't say the first name, but it was Rutherford. I remember his first name too, but actually in a moment of insanity, myself and my buddy who actually had the flat, went and found him and fucking challenged him about it, like as if we were going to do anything. But anyway, I think that was probably the right thing to do because we were all buddies after that, myself and Rutherford and his fucking cronies, like, you know what I mean? I guess they, I wasn't just some college pushover, whatever, you know? It was just the crazy times. Needless to say, um, one of I remember one of my first big routines that used to kill in Cork was I did this show, a routine about the fact that I didn't have a cable in the Glen. I didn't have a TV, actually. Um, I never got one. Uh, but that I didn't need one because at any time of the day, I would look out my window in my flat in the Glen and there would be a different TV show outside. And, uh, you know, it's so funny. I can't even remember the three, the different movie outside. I can't even remember the three movies that I picked, but I would do like a cork version of three films. Um, and, uh, the final one was like an impersonation of like a drunk cork guy, just like roaring and shouting at nobody. It's amazing how I can't even remember that routine. And it was like, it was like my closer, you know? Um, and it's completely gone from my mind. But like that used to be like almost like standing ovation closer in city limits, you know? Um, I think it was the Terminator, the cork version. Uh, I think it was the Terminator, the cork version. And 
and and it's funny because back then I used to actually, as I would do this routine, as I would say these words like shouting in a Cork accent, it didn't really matter what I said because the audience just just saw me as some yank that just got off the plane, and suddenly I was doing like a perfect Northside Cork accent. I mean, it was such a it was such an easy start for me really it's not even fair because their perception of what i was was incorrect i mean i was like an irish educated you know guy with a new york accent you know and was already into my third year of living in cork not to mention my what this was 97 into 98 like my 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 seventh year of living in ireland you know it was a third of my life already at that stage I was living in Ireland, so it was like a, a good portion of my life in Ireland, but they just saw me as an American, and then I could do this accent, so it didn't really matter what I said, but it was handy. The, the narrative made it funnier. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I, 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 I could spend a week trying to remember what the fuck I used to say, and I wouldn't remember, but it was a big performance, you know? And uh, so that all that sort of, working you know like working to sort of semi at that time uh, this is not really a judgment but there was an element of underclass thing because ireland you know this is before the celtic tiger you know the talk of ireland sort of starting to do well didn't really start until after i finished college 98 and you know there was still uh, you know elements of uh the, the 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 dark 80s language was still sort of present in neighborhoods like this like they hadn't really begun to feel the benefits of ireland's uh you know Ireland's economic recovery, uh, so there, there really was an element of like underclass about the Glen, forgotten class, probably a better a better term, and uh, so anyway, uh, that was like my my first and the other big routine from Cork at that time was I used to do an impersonation of Radio Friendly, and Radio Friendly was like this amazing undertaking, which very much came from the my other well one of my other. Cork lives was even after getting clean I still used to go to Sir Henry's and we still used to we were really into the dance scene and we were just big radio friendly fans like we just loved radio friendly and so within three gigs I was doing a radio friendly joke and oh eight seven four five one four five eight and uh you know I would just impersonate Stevie G and you know the 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 rave music and I, I it's funny I did that that joke I did my my pirate radio because that was an illegal pirate radio station in Cork City, and I I did that joke. My tenth gig ever was the semi final of the BBC New Comedy Awards at the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin. Barry Murphy and Dylan Moran hosting. Myself, Deirdre O'Kane, Tommy Nicholson, Bob Riley, Patty Courtney. Um, God, who else was on that bill? Uh, oh, Barry Glendening. You know, went on to work for the Guardian, a few other people, and I I closed it out, and I did the the Cork radio routine. My other routine at that was Cliffy from Cheers coming to the Glen. You can actually this this gig is on YouTube. Cliffy from Cheers coming to the Glen. I used to do an impersonation of Cliffy from Cheers coming to Cork. Sorry, and. Uh, you know, it was like, uh, you know, like, yeah, 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 you know, after Chia's finish it, whatever. I used to do a good Cliffy. I can't even do it anymore. Hey, how you doing here, Sammy? So uh, uh, it was, I, the routine was something like yeah, Cliffy. So Cliffy's sitting in a bar and then, oh, Cork guy comes up. It's like, pardon me, are you Cliffy from Cheers? 
<laughs> so fucking stupid. Like, like to think that I, I'm so embarrassed by my early material, and people would just laugh straight away. They couldn't believe I could do a Cork accent. So they'd be like, uh, "Pardon me, are you Cliffy from Cheers?" I was like, "Yeah, that's right, I'm Cliffy from Cheers." And uh, whatever this whole argument would ensue. And um, but I also did the the Cork City uh, pirate radio routine. And Eddie Bannon used to have a Dublin pirate radio routine, and he would be like, "Shout out to all the boys and the joy." And some people started to say to me, "You robbed that from Eddie Bannon." But Eddie Bannon came up to me and said, "I I, I know for a fact that you haven't seen my routine. I, I I you know don't worry about it." So that was that was pretty handy because some people were trying to turn that into a thing, and I definitely hadn't seen Eddie Bannon's pirate radio routine. And his one was different and 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 amazing. He used to have a radio on stage, and he would he would turn it up. And then when he was talking, he would turn it down, which was often the case with those pirate radio stations. You know, it would be like like some hardcore techno. It would be like, and then it would drop a bit, and it would be like, yeah, this goes down for Patty and Kulak. Shout out to all the boys in the Because I used to have a line of, shout out to all the boys in Cork City tonight. And the funny thing was that that never actually, very rare was there like shout outs to Cork City Prison. Radio Friendly wasn't actually like really like radio for the, for for the tough guys radio friendly was all the djs were like well the majority of the djs were like in ucc and you know it was it was, it was kind of it was kind of a different scene anyway long story short i'm really fucking over talking here jesus christ uh um uh all, all those routines were were really inspired by that early na so i mean if i if i i don't think if i if i hadn't gotten sober i don't think i would have ever been a comedian um and uh, I guess uh, the other two big early routines, I kind of, I kind of just, I didn't censor myself there, but I was, I, I really have just gotten lost in just too much talking. You know, the problem is that I just, it just take, I just start to visualize these moments, and it's almost like euphoric recall to go that far back. Like it, I can't believe how far back it is. You know, like even I was listening to um, Rabbit Hole. New York Times podcast, you know, from the Daily, and it's it, it's 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 a going on about the the rabbit hole of YouTube and how people get sucked in, and that's how they get radicalized by the internet. And when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. They were kind of doing, you know, they kind of, they kind of like play little sound bites from the videos of the time to sort of give it a sense of time, and like Dick in a Box, like like played a bit of Dick in a Box, you know, it's my Dick in a Box, and 
you know, just about sort of like that time in our lives. And I just couldn't believe how nostalgic that was. I couldn't believe how nostalgic Dick in a Box was, let alone fucking pre-Wi-Fi, my flat in the Glen. Dick in a Box felt like so long ago. And that actually freaked me out because until I heard Dick in a Box, the song, I wouldn't have put Dick in a Box as such a nostalgic thing. But, you know, in the, in, in the timeline of this this rabbit hole, um, podcast it was just like holy shit those days you know like just going through the different sort of ways that youtube evolved just like how long that's been around you know and just how nostalgic early youtube is now you know because still in my mind youtube is a new thing and it's so not you know it's so it's just uh, it's just amazing how quick things evolve and I, I think that might have begun to trigger my nostalgia and now the problem is that you know, I'm thinking about all this stuff and I'm just going into euphoric recall, just just imagining the Glen, you know, that's the sort of wasteland of the Glen. You know, I used to walk home sometimes and uh, I always remember Sunday afternoons because, you know, I can't, I can't sleep in, you know, still to this day, I can't fucking sleep in. I always wake up early and Saturday nights we would always go to Sir Henry's clean and sober, all my NA buddies, but we'd be out late, you know, uh, and this was the, the beginning of Red Bull, you know, and so we, we drink like a Red Bull. It was like literally year one of Red Bull, like 97, 98. And, uh, you know, I'd go to bed at like three or four in the morning and I'd wake up at fucking eight and I'd be like tired, you know? And I didn't have a shower. I only had a bath. There was no shower in the flat. So I'd have these like intensely hot baths, like hot to the point was like almost unbearable, you know? And I used to love, like it was like a steam room experience. I would get so hot and fucking sweat. I wouldn't put my head under until the sweat was dripping down my face. And then when I really felt like I was sweating, I put my head under, I'd finish my bath, and then I would fill the bath with fucking bo- freezing cold water, and I would um, submerge myself in the freezing cold for a minute. And then I would come out uh, and sit in a chair for like five minutes and do like what I would consider like a meditation, and I would just sit there in this just most intense, just like so relaxed, my heart pounding from the cold, and just let myself kind of drip dry in the flat because the heating was on 24 seven because it wasn't, it was controlled by the corporation. It wasn't controlled by me and the flat was always way too hot. And that was another joke that I used to say, which was like, people say open the windows and it's like, I'm not fucking opening the windows. I'm not fucking wasting this heat. I'm fucking paying for it. I'm fucking using it. And, uh, so I would sit there in the heat, freezing cold, my heart pounding. And it was such a great feeling. It was like, it would just take me away from myself for five minutes. I would have no thoughts other than my pounding heart uh my my slowly you know like the sweat slowly drying um and just peace you know which i didn't experience a lot of until those early years of recovery like moments of peace moments of tranquility my head finally shutting off and then i would you know this is more of like a a spring memory the evenings would stretch and I would always go to a eight o'clock meeting or seven thirty meeting on a Sunday night in Cork, and I would be walking out of Cumber Park, and Cumber Park was up on a hill. And if you looked to the north, you looked at Dublin Hill and Balavalan down to Duns, but in between was just a massive, like, uh, valley, uh, and it was 
it was just a lot of green and gorse and it almost felt rural, you know, but, and the Glen had these like massive green spaces, but they were just kind of like not well designed. They were just like vast spaces of nothingness, uh, sort of peppered with these badly developed corporation houses and then these horrific flats. Um, but I would walk down towards the the hill to Blackpool. You know, you would go down a hill to Blackpool to head into town. And as you were walking past my flat, my flat building, it just opened up vast sort of, you know, nothingness. And I was always so tired on a Sunday evening from like having no sleep, but I would be sort of relaxed from the, the bath. And I just always remember you know, just on those walks feeling like so sad for, you know, the people that were stuck there, which of course is a judgment on on my behalf, but it just felt so barren, you know, the, 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 the social housing life, as I perceived it at that time, 20 years old, um, 21 whatever it felt so fucking empty you know and i would always be aware of it on a sunday night you know it would be it would it would get in me you know like a sadness uh and it just didn't feel fair uh and 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 just the reason why i'm telling that story is uh i can't stop seeing that that path, that path through the green that I used to walk through uh, to get into town. I can't stop saying the whole time I've been talking, I've just been stuck there in my head. And it's so long ago, but for some reason, it's just certain images just are locked in your mind and the emptiness of that. And, you know, it really affected me, that period of time in my life, because, you know, the second series that I ever made was 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 Joy in the Hood, which was about doing stand up comedy workshops in you know traditionally marginalized communities, uh, you know communities that that had like a serious stigma around them. Uh, you know, I did in Cork, I did it in Knocknaheeny, which had just one touch more stigma than the Glen. But I, I actually feel like the Glen was worse because the Glen was almost forgotten about. Like a lot of people just didn't even know the Glen. Whereas Knocknaheeny was sort of like famously shit, you know. It was almost like like a badge of honor to be from Naknahini, whereas from the Glen, people would be like, where? Like what? Sort of like the Glen was almost just like just the barren, forgotten wasteland. Naknahini was so bad, it was famous. But anyway, I did it Naknahini. I did it Ballymun in Dublin. And, you know, the, the, the two things that brought that together were my experience of having lived in the Glen. And then, funnily enough, in Dublin, also NA guys, uh, I ended up living in Fatima Mansions, also a famously bad name, but all connected through NA. And all that understanding of that way of life, or certainly certainly exposure to it. I don't know if understanding is, is fair, but exposure to that way of life, you know, the toughest neighborhoods of Ireland, all came from NA. All came from guys that had a completely different upbringing from me. And we all connected so strongly. I mean, we're so, we're so strong. Like those people I lived with in Fatima Mansions, you know, their son is my godchild. He's 20 years old now, you know? And uh, the, 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 like 
those those bonds were so strong the 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 exposure to that like really got in me so much so that the second tv show i ever made was kind of like trying to do something for that world you know uh so really it's fun to think back to that time in the glen you know cuz it wasn't just you know my my late adolescence early 20s which is always i think a form formative years for people but it was also those early years of sobriety and kind of relearning how to be a human being and becoming aware of my emotions and right back to the beginning of this conversation where i was trying to be like the perfect recovering addict part of that was i also meditated like like the fucking best meditator that ever existed and i also did a lot of therapy and I tried to get a better understanding of myself and, you know, did a lot of work on my inner child and understood, you know, maybe some of the, some of the weird stuff that was the beginning of me understanding that I had a stressful childhood, all this stuff, just information, information and, and, you know, exploration of myself and learning. And, you know, it was all, you know, it was all just, you know, happening at that time. And so locked into that sense of rebirth was an awakening to, inequality and so it all got tied in together and very much became a part of who i was as a as a as a young stand-up comic you know and i'm i'm grateful to all of it i mean i'm almost i'm not i don't give myself a hard time but i i I did lose actually a little bit of focus on that inequality as 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 one of the big issues that that mattered to me i mean it, it always mattered but i guess my 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 focus on 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 like on it shifted like i used to volunteer a lot in the rialto community drug team do fundraisers for the rialto youth club you know and 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 sort of like i i knew all those people i was involved with all those people and you know i recently did this uh fundraiser for lynn ruan who who's very much in the in the heart of of this that world that we're just talking about and uh, you know one or two of the people I sort of semi-knew from the Rialto, you know, the people that work in the community, but I, I don't know them like I used to know them, you know, and I, I, I did drift. I, honestly, I did, I did drift from that, you know, just, you know, it's, 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 you know, you, 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 you move on professionally in your life. And, you know, I, 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 I lost my connection with, with, with a lot of that. Uh, but it was so much a part of my life in those early days. And it wasn't fake, you know. I, obviously, at the time, some people tried to suggest that join the hood was like some sort of exploitation, but it, it really wasn't fake. I mean, it was literally everything. You know, it, it, it was so much a part of my life in those early years of when I was doing stand up, but it wasn't connected to the stand up. It was really it came from NA, and then it came from, you know, the fact that I was so moved by what I was experiencing that I wanted to do something, you know. You know, and I even I used to do, you know, run the meeting in in, in Mount Joy, and uh, truth be told, the early Joy in the Hood was originally meant to be um, it, the original proposal was called Bringing the Joy. I wanted to do stand up comedy workshops in Mount Joy Prison. I had a meeting with Governor Lonergan, and I was going to do stand up comedy workshops in Mount Joy, and then I was going to also follow one comedian who was released one guy who was released that was going to try to be a stand-up comedian so it was going to be the story of the guys inside doing workshops and the story of this one guy on the outside who used to be a prisoner trying to be a comedian and then focus on 
all the communities where these guys are from. Because if you know anything about um, Irish inequality, you know that most of the people in prisons come from the same neighborhoods uh, in Dublin, in Cork, in Limerick. The majority of them come from these areas, you know, and a lot of them have remained the same, you know. Uh, so I really wanted to tell the story of how, you know, imprisonment, uh, you know, crime, it all relates to poverty, you know, and that the, these cycles of poverty have a lot to do with your address and your accent. And I wanted to just get into all the the aspects of marginalization through this story of bringing the joy uh, and Lonergan seemed to be into it, but we just, we, there was just a lot of logistical issues and nobody, it's not that bringing the joy was stopped or somebody said, we're not going to do bringing the joy, but we just began to focus. We just began to think, okay, the prison thing is difficult and it's an aspect of marginalization, but it's not the whole story. So let's, 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 let's think about the communities themselves. And you know, that's how the joy in the hood came about was because we said that let's, Let's actually just go to the communities and let's try to create, let's try to give people an opportunity to, to write some jokes and, and tell jokes about their lives. Uh, let's, let's let them, you know, they've been the butt of the joke for, for so long. Let's let them own the humor. You know, let's let, you know, let, let them tell the jokes about their area to their people and uh, make them realize. Because the, the, our, my other problem was that, Stand-up comedy was so middle class, really, you know? Truth be told, most of my compatriots in stand-up comedy were middle class, educated, and, you know, I just thought, like, you know, all these funny guys in NA, like all these fucking ex-heroin addicts that came from fucking hell, and they're all, they're all doing well now. You know, the minute you take away the things that are holding them back, they do well. You know? All that was in me. It was like, so if you take this heroin addict whose life was going nowhere, and 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 you suddenly get him clean immediately he flourishes he or she flourishes immediately they start to become productive members of society and some of them really productive members of society and then so many of them are so fucking funny and their stories about their crazy lives are so fucking funny i was like come on like we got to give a voice to this you know the the humor of chaos here and uh i i just wanted to see and you know joy in the hood it doesn't really matter but joy in the hood the workshops, the, the 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 physical experience that we had, the actual experience that we had, one month of living in these communities for me and working with these guys, and the gig itself was such an incredible experience. The TV show, for me personally, was average, like almost a letdown in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the, the Des Bishop work experience was 40-minute episodes, which was very rare for RTE, but it really was the perfect number for the work experience 26 minutes would have been too short an hour would have been too long uh and they for some reason they let us do 40 minute apps which was just perfect but they were not going to let us do a 40 minute app for join the hood so they said 26 or 52 those are the two lengths that you can do and we felt like an hour per episode would have been too long now as it turns out in hindsight i think that was wrong i think we should have just taken the risk and gone for 52 but it's a lot of work i mean these these shows have no budgets so, and you know, the editing and the directing wasn't on me. So I wasn't really too involved in that decision. In the end, we decided that we'd go for the 26 less is more, but actually 26 minutes wasn't enough to tell the story of what happened. So it ended up becoming almost like an MTV music video, quick rush experience. And you never, I, my opinion, you never got to know the people enough. 
and uh, you know you just didn't really get a chance to sort of get immersed in the in the story of these people. So it was fine, but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a, as good a representation of what we experienced as it could have been because the experience was incredible. Uh, you know, just the time we had together and then the people from the community laughing, you know, at themselves, you know, with themselves, you know, about, you know, about their own lives, but in a funny way, it was fucking, it was so great, you know, and the TV show was fine, but the experience was amazing. Like, I'll never forget it. Like, you know, so grateful to have, to have had, had that experience, you know? So anyway, I, I've, I've talked way more. There was, I, there was other things I was going to talk about, but this is what it's become. I hope this is interesting. It's probably a little self-indulgent, but it came out and uh, it's really just, it's kind of cork and then into that, that Dublin stuff. I'll talk about this stuff again in, in the future because it's fun to sort of remember it. Uh, but now I've definitely talked long enough. I'm not going to edit it. There's part of me wants to go back and edit this, but I'm just going to fucking put it up. And if it's a bit meandering, so be it. We'll have some more focused episodes uh, next week. Um, and I will, uh, I, I am going to talk a little bit about meditation though soon, uh, in that I just kind of want to give, I want to tell a little bit of my meditation story just in terms of how I came to it, uh, because, it, because it's not very involved. I think a lot of times people think with the meditation that there's a whole lot to learn, but actually my experience with meditation, there wasn't like a ton of learning. So I'm actually just going to, in an episode soon, I'm going to talk about how I came to meditation, which was, of course, originally through through the steps, you know, the 11th step is we saw through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God uh, as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out, which, you know, honestly, I, you know, I can, I can, I, another time I'll also talk about how the God thing, I eventually began, began to sort of like just be a little put off by the God thing in, in the steps. But that aside, I'm very grateful for how I was introduced to meditation through all that. And, uh, so I, I will do an episode on just my very sort of like run-of-the-mill uh, entry to meditation just to make people realize that just the, the, the practice of quietening the mind doesn't have to be a big operation and uh, that it can be so beneficial, um, including those like hot baths and then cold <laughs> cold baths in the glen. It was all at that time, you know, fucking, you know, I think part of the reason why I'm remembering that time is because I had so much time. It's kind of like now, you know, you're young and you're, you have so much fucking time to think about yourself, you know, then life gets so busy and you don't fucking have time to think, you know, and then a pandemic happens and you go back to thinking about it. Remember when you could just fucking sit around and try to make sense of yourself. So, uh, anyway, um, we'll do that soon. We'll have Joanne back on hopefully this week. Steve was supposed to interview Yamanika, but then. I had to reschedule my podcast with her, so I felt bad pushing her to do mine. And uh, I really should get a producer. There must be, you know, I, I should get a producer to just organize guests because guests are fun. But anyway, the shift will be up tomorrow night, late into Tuesday morning. And uh, don't forget the usual leave a comment, blah, blah, blah. Subscribe, spread the word. Chat soon, guys. Love you. Thanks. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.